the triumph of democracy. Rejoice for the triumph of democracy. A new king has come. The tyrant must flee. Now, the wars may continue much as before, but with a commander-in-chief who isn't a bore. Poverty persists and remains unaddressed, but this president, importantly, talks of progress. The prisons are packed, slave trade in full swing, but the leader kisses baby, so who wouldn't trust him? The new boss has his faults, of course he tells lies, but at least he has the decency to hide them from our eyes. Drone bombs continue to kill kids from afar. This we can tolerate, just not the porn star. On sexual assault, we're actually not fussy, just please no jokes about grabbing some pussy. The war on terror may have dispossessed millions, but the important question, did he contribute with his billions? No longer will a buffoon this sacred office defile. We care not for substance, it's all about style. This God has not failed, that could not be, for his job is protecting the powers that be. The people placated, rejoice from sea to shining sea, the empire remains, and that is the triumph of democracy. Wonderful. Welcome to my Friends Hate Freedom podcast, everybody. Today I'm here with Richard Cox. He's a researcher, an author, a podcaster, and obviously a poet. Um, and his podcast is Deep State Consciousness, deepstateconsciousness.com. Thanks for coming on, Richard. Thank you very much for having me. So you said you should give some context to that poem, and uh, I'll let you go ahead. The first piece of context I'd like to give is that I've never read it to anyone other than myself in the bathroom mirror, so I apologize for the clunkiness, but thank you, whoever's listening, for being the first audience to, to really hear that. Um, so The Triumph of Democracy is a poem I wrote after the election of Joe Biden, uh, not in any way in support of Joe Biden or Donald Trump, but to vent my frustrations at seeing people treating this as if it was some wonderful victory for democratic forces, as if, as if light had overcome darkness. Really, a very on-the-surface interpretation. They don't like the aesthetics of Trump, and so Biden is a better pick. And I, one post that just hit me over the head, where I saw a fellow, very nice fellow, I sort of know him, very likable, write that democracy had triumphed over autocracy. Thought, you know, what, what does that mean, right? Like if, if if Trump had won, would that be autocracy triumphing over democracy if more people have voted for him? And really, it's this making a religion out of democracy and the idea that we vote the right leader in and it'll all be great and, and not seeing this just slightly beneath the surface, deeper level, that what you have is a, a structural dictatorship where the, the government is always the government and you vote the new face in every time. So that, that's what the, the triumph, the essence of the triumph of democracy was going for. And then it just runs through some of the things that continue and some of the like the silly things about uh, the, the way you know Trump's kind of actions of women cause great scorn but as long as you keep that out of the public light like Clinton it's not so bad and all this kind of thing so it's my like all my political poems are really a venting of my own frustration when it just boils over and I can't take it any longer and this pours out yeah yeah well you've got a lot of other ways of uh going off about this stuff, like your whole energy of empire series, um, in your podcasts, you've done a lot of research on the various, um, American expansions, shall we say. Mm. <laughs> and, um, you know, you mentioned how democracy is like 
a religion, um, it's interesting how, what does, what does that even mean? Uh, it's like, like we look at, um, what's going on in Ukraine or, or in America, um, democracy apparently means outlawing religions that you disagree with, um, political parties that you disagree with any, any opposition can be outlawed and it's, that's the triumph of democracy, right? Yeah, you know, I first heard that idea that democracy was a religion expressed by an historian writing on the Crusades at the time of the Iraq War. And she drew the comparison between what was going on uh, with Bush exporting democracy and what the Christians had done exporting Christianity. And I did not get it at the time. I couldn't get my head around that, that democracy was a religion, because to me, democracy was like the best way to be governed, right? And I was like, quite aware of a conspiratorial worldview then. I was quite alternative in a lot of ways. But when I look back, I was just really inside the court of democracy, just really inside it and couldn't see outside of it. And then you can't see it as religion and you can't see the comparison to the Crusades or other religious conversion acts that are going on. But now it's completely blown obvious to me, but it amazes me that I couldn't see it then. But that's that's the all-consuming nature of religious courts when you're in them. Right. Yeah. You don't, you don't know that, um, there's something outside of your own sort of paradigm. So like <laughs> you're a Brit, right? And how, how is it that you've become so well versed in, um, American history and you're obviously very, uh, into it. Specifically, I'm Manx. I'm from the Isle of Man, right? And it's hmm. a couple of things no about races. America. Yeah. So we're right center in the British Isles small island um so with with what you're referring to there, the energy of empire series this is a series that i'm on episode 18 of now and the first 10 episodes of that started off right after the u.s had subdued the native americans and then launched overseas there's this big debate in america then in the united states do we normalize and become a republic now as the founding fathers intended or do we carry on this imperial quest and launch out over the oceans to take cuba hawaii the philippines guam and ultimately the imperialists won out and were on the road to the u.s empire so why did i jump into that? i did like the first 10 episodes I say, on that period of history or when when that debate is won out and um the what i'm getting at there i'm trying to understand really the modern world i'm trying to understand how we live in a world where 10 years from now, we're apparently going to own nothing and be happy. I'm trying to understand the world of lockdowns and mandates and, and all the rest and how you can have a, a seeming health crisis in China and suddenly all the countries in the world go into a lockstep response. How can this be? Because it's not driven by science or logic or economics or anything. It's like there is some overarching agenda that we're all in lockstep with, but where's it come from? And where did this did these institutions come from? How do we get such a, a globally monocentric world where even seemingly opposing forces like Russia, China, and the United States are largely in lockstep in these policies. And with history, the, the difficulties, of course, is always finding a place to jump in that's not like you know going back to the ancient Egyptians or something and taking more than a lifetime to do. So I felt that point in the 1990s with the presidencies of William McKinley and Theodore Roosevelt is a kind of break in history. It's a point where history could have gone one way or the other. America could have gone to being a republic or it could have lurched into being an empire. And of course, the United States went on to become the dominant global superpower. So if you're looking at how the world is today, you can the one country you certainly can't ignore is the United States. It has to be a US-centric take. So that, that's, about, that, that's the point. I'm going to jump into the, wither, the river and see where those currents take me then. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff I can, a lot of the content I consume, um, you know, people talk about who is they, you know, and there's all different nationalities, religions, um, NGOs, various organizations. Um, a lot of them have a lot of the same people on them. And so, you know, there, there are these globalist organizations that aren't just the United States, but you're right that, um, America or the United States of America has been like the, the driving power behind a lot of this, certainly the biggest military power for a long time. Yeah. So we see this kind of nationalist imperialism, which I think we could all understand to some degree in the United States it has been that, uh, sometimes under the banner of an anti-communist crusade, sometimes under the banner of an anti-terrorist crusade, an anti-drugs crusade, but there's also a kind of internationalist world order, which we see as well with these kind of internationalist groups at Davos and, and all the rest. And sometimes they are clearly in conflict with each other, like the, the League of Nations, say. So you have their uh, the main opposition is coming from Henry Cabot Lodge in the US Senate. And now Lodge was a, the, the arch-imperialist in the Senate just 20 years before. So he's building up the nationalist American empire, but he's opposed to the internationalist empire. At other times, they're in lockstep. And what the United States builds is a global world order through the CIA and the Pentagon uh, post the Second World War, essentially then becomes, it's it's the driving force that allows an international order to come into being. So really, that's what I want to understand more clearly, because I've, I've got a rough understanding of it, but I'm going back and seeing if you can I can fill in the details and, and go on a journey of people where that image gets coloured in and clearer in my mind, and then for expressing it, maybe it makes it a clearer path for, for other people to follow. So it's not such a, a big leap, right? This, this kind of sounds crazy. There's like an international conspiracy to take over the world so well, how can you logically step by step go from american imperialism of the 1890s and then the british imperialism and the anglo-american empire to, to seeing that coming into being yeah yeah it is interesting um because even though there were um foreign influences um england included like with world war one and world war ii winston churchill like drawing america in sort of um yeah, America ended up being pretty decisive and um, obviously those just helped empower the empire, not um, and the good guys always win. We have to remember that, right? Um, so <laughs> yeah, lucky that <laughs> whatever, yeah. whatever happened, it's, it's good that America got involved because we made sure the good guys won. So um, how do you see, like, bringing it more into current times, how do you see the relationship between England and the United States or between the EU and the United States, even the relationship between England and the EU since England left the EU? It's a, that's a pretty interesting dynamic between it's, – it's like a tryst almost – yeah, I mean, I think I, I see the relationship between the UK and the United States in a fairly standard way, really, in that you have this Anglo-American empire, which the um, people in England were driving for 120 years ago, uh, but accepted at the time that Washington, D.C. would probably ultimately be the major source of power there. So I see the, you know, the fairly standard interpretation, I think, that the UK has, has learned to play second fiddle to the, to the US empire and maintain itself on the world stage in that way. 
and then the the EU in in the US. Um, I wouldn't be too expert on that at all, but I think the the US has seen the EU as a way to wrap up the European countries into a controllable economic zone at times. That's just a bit of a rough take on it. Yeah. Yeah, I've uh, I've heard some analysis that I can't quite disagree with that it seems like both um the EU and America and probably England are, are in for a rough ride. I mean, men, much of the world is in for a rough ride um in the coming months, years um because we've obviously got this battle um between the people who want total control of the entire world and um well, let's just there there's like the the people um which is really where the battle is is between just the people themselves and the controllers, but then there's these factions such as nations and nationalists who actually are powerful in politics and everything. Um it seems like the EU is in some ways the most screwed. Um and all of our currencies are bogus, right? But that's pretty much, that's almost worldwide. Um, some countries are starting to use other currencies or back their currencies with gold. I don't see most, like, it seems like the EU is the furthest down that slope as far as um, maybe their currency or just the the unsustainability. Now I say that, but I see a lot of that in America as well. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it looks completely unsustainable. You have like... I've lost count for me trillions in unfunded liabilities and debt the US goes into. Uh, so it must be long-term unsustainable. I mean, maybe it's offset by technological innovation. If all the 3D printers came online or the teleporting machines or whatever, there's such technological innovation that keeps the whole thing going. And then we just don't see the the fruits of that economic growth instead. So but it, it certainly does look um, unsustainable. I, I think it's very difficult to make predictions because particularly within like Austrian economics, this is obviously the idea of the boom bust cycle and people, yeah, I've heard for a long, long time now predicting like the crash is just around the corner based sort of loosely on that. And it, it's often a very blunt instrument to make precise predictions. But if you go back to that simple narrative that if you pour a lot of fake credit into the system and um, you're creating the illusion of wealth and it's akin to a builder um, thinking he's got 10,000 bricks to construct his building and really he's only got eight thousand so at some point in the seven thousands he realizes this is, this is going to go wrong so he's, he's had the boom and now some kind of bust is coming and it's kind of inevitable because the wealth is isn't there because he had he had receipts for ten thousand bricks but there were only eight thousand so that's the the fiat currency thing right so that i think there's an inevitability uh, to that process but how it actually maps onto the real world i think is a, it's a very complex question right yeah and it seems like they're they're trying their hardest to um kick it down the road which is i thought back in 0809 that that was it you know um i had just bought a house and that affected me i i had some some uh iras or whatever and and it affected those a lot and it was like man this is not good and so that was that was part of my economic waking up um but man they sure managed to just kick it down the road and make it seem like everything was fine. And it's interesting because it seems very much like that right now. It's sort of a, a surreal instance. It, it's, it's a surreal world that we find ourselves in where we're still going and getting food just fine. There's, and yet we can, we can feel that there's uh there's trouble coming and we know that there is trouble coming from just, um, 
understanding what some of the agenda is. Yeah. Yeah. And the inevitability of, of what they've done to the economy. And I think people are feeling it a lot here with uh, the inflation biting now strongly in the UK. So that that's being felt for sure. Right. Yeah. That's, that's something that we got some sharp inflation in 2020, 2021, and it's sort of leveled off a bit where if you have been okay up till now, you're still kind of doing okay. Right. Um, which is where a lot of people are. I'm not in a city. So a lot of the people in the cities and, and who are, uh, who are really on the, uh, walking that edge of existence, um, between their resources and, um, their existence, that's, uh, that it's, um, it's tougher on them. You know, we've yeah. got all these homeless people I mean, and everything. But, I think we um, all look at things like lockdowns and well, I remember probably I was in some economic forums, right. And the day the lockdown was announced and everyone starts talking about, uh, Leonard Reed, I pencil the essay about how uh-huh. the complexity of making a pencil and how no one in the world could make a pencil because you need to water from a rainforest on one continent and graphite to be mined on another and then you need the factory to bring this together and, and the ships and the parts to make the ships and it's about the, the yep. really the beauty the of the interconnected economic the, world the rubber for the tires all that yeah exactly yeah. and then you see like politicians just going well, well these goods are non-essential so and all based on what people who work in cities you think are essential. So gloves aren't essential because that's just something you wear to go out and look smart in, right? They're not something you wear to do a day's <laughs> craft in. So that, and you think, oh my God, they're going to, they can't get this right. They're going to like make some chemical non-essential that's an essential thing in some polymer that goes into paint on the side of your tin of baked beans. And then you're not going to go. And the fact that it, <laughs> it held together was kind of amazing. And whether it speaks to the robustness of our markets or what, but of course we're seeing the good side of it, right? In, in third world countries, it didn't hold together and millions of people just starved and that's it Yeah, because they they don't have that economic engine. So if you want to look and see what interfering of the economy really looks like, you look at Nigeria or somewhere like that or what happened in India where they send all the workers home. And yeah. So it, it speaks to the intense robustness of our system that we're still able to go to the stores and get food and all the rest. And I think there's a real um, hubris, right? in the Western mind that it can never go wrong and you can lock down, you can stay home from work, the government can just send you a check, we could have a universal basic income stream. There is no amount of leaning on this system we could do uh, without it breaking. And there's a, a politician, um, I'm going to mispronounce her name, Kemi Bandachok in, in the UK. She was nearly the Conservative Party leader, therefore nearly the Prime Minister, such a Nigerian. And I'm not saying I like or dislike her, right? But what, one of the things that um, she's actually, yeah, being Nigerian in origin, she saw her father's business destroyed when the government there just decided they could print money to get out of debt or they slapped huge tariffs on imports and exports and did this crazy thing and that crazy thing so it's kind of interesting because in contrast to all other british politicians she knows what happens when it hits the fan you know she knows that if you muck that there are certain systems there are certain economic and liberal principles that keep uh, a country afloat and if you mess with them and mess with them mess with them it does all come crashing down and in nigeria you really see that so you know, I thought that was an interesting contrast to, to any other British political candidate. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's that's a really good point that those third world countries did not have the same experience that we did where it was an inconvenience and maybe a little bit of a wake up. Um, it was it was like it was death for a lot of people. You know, some sorry, one of the Black Lives Matter parades or, or protests were going on when like same people attending them, but they were generally sort of lockdown supported, right? And it's, it's just like the worst thing 
that ever happened to black people in, since like the Ethiopian famine or something, right? This is like the biggest reversion of living standards and the biggest increase in childhood hunger and starvation ever was going on right at the time of the Black Lives Matter protests, largely supported by people attending them. I mean, there you go. That's irony of the 21st century right there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's that's like the the bomb being dropped on a brown country with a BLM sticker on it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So you did a huge study on mandates. Um, I did. Tell me about that. So, okay, it actually, to round off this story, just as the lockdowns were coming in, um, I was just finished writing a series of articles on anarchism, or the essence of anarchy, which I'd put together over 10 years of talking to friends of mine and them throwing it back in my face and me getting frustrated and thinking, what the hell did I say wrong there? And then coming with better ways to talk and, and figuring out the most helpful ways where I was tripping up over my own language. So I did that, published the articles. It later became a book, but I thought, okay, I've said everything I need to say in it now. And then the pandemic happened. And all anyone wanted to know when I talk about this, what, what would you do under anarchy in a pandemic? How would anarchy? And I said, well, I didn't write about a pandemic because there wasn't a pandemic at the time. And I couldn't envision this. So um, for me, three years later, to produce what is a small book on, on the pandemic, it was kind of like a cathartic thing of looking at, okay, the state made these two core claims at the start of this. This terrible danger is coming from China. Very, very dangerous. It's going to kill a lot of people. But we... And we alone can protect you. So measuring the mandate was saying, okay, you've had your chance. Uh, we all went along with it. We had to, whether we wanted to or not. Three years later now, did it work? Okay, was there this terrible danger? Did you save us from it? And how would we even measure that? Because the world didn't stand still. So we could get our rulers out and put it alongside. Everything moved. All the systems changed and everything. So that's a complex question in itself. How, we, how would you even know if your interventions worked? And measuring the mandates is that assessment. It's it's looking at this whole COVID era through a, a sort of anarchic lens, a lens that's very cynical of state responses to crises. But you uh, you seem like you, even though you're coming from an anarchic position, um, it seemed like by listening to your podcast and stuff, it seemed like you were remaining very... Um, you made a point of remaining objective and presenting the counter arguments and everything and not jumping to conclusions because you sort of, it seemed like you let the data speak for itself rather hmm. than that's my impression. Anyway. Um, I remember, uh, well, it's, it's somewhat unrelated, but there was a, a debate that you had um, between with it was you and one other guy, I believe, from Skeptic Tank. Alex and Sigiris, yeah. About viruses and the yeah. existence of viruses. And um, it was between like germ theory and terrain theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sort and, of. Yeah. And um, you were like, well, why can't, like, why can't it be kind of both? And that's actually very much where I land. Um, he said, you have to choose one or the other. It can't be both. And I did not see any reason why that would be the case. <laughs> yeah. Well, this cuts into, and thank you for observing that, this cuts into a fundamental underpinning of my philosophical approach to anything and everything, and particularly the podcast and the writing, which is that of pluralism, okay, which I particularly was influenced by a philosopher of science called Paul Feyerabend. And 
the the idea is not that there is no objective truth out there somewhere off in the distance that we can march towards. The idea is that that objective truth is very hard to find, and we're often grasping through mists. And when we think we found it, we so often haven't. And all the great destruction in history, so much of it has been brought about by people who really, really convince themselves they found the truth. And there's nothing else to do now. There's no other opinions to consider, and we can just go for it. And almost always, they're going for it right off a cliff into a chasm of chaos. So I'm really feel the devotion to move towards the truth. But I feel that devotion is also balanced out by an extreme skepticism of when I think I found it. And my response to that, that is, is I, I think that the best way to approach it is not through one perspective. We get locked into one perspective and we're better off adopting a multitude of perspectives, both in groups where everyone takes a different position. And also if we can, in our own minds to, to grasp at these very different concepts. So when I debated Alex, I wasn't saying that germ theory or terrain theory was true, or that the no virus position is right, the no virus position has been so very controversial. I was saying, look, I've heard these no virus people say things which is like they make some really insightful criticisms, and they see things about yeah. the pandemic that no one else does. Because if you don't think there's a virus and a whole bunch of people start dying, you are going to look for reasons other than a virus to account for that. And guess what? You're going to find them, and you're going to find a lot of them. But if you think it's a virus, you don't look for them. Okay, so even if there is ultimately a virus, you still need the people who are cynical of that to to find those reasons. And the fact that they do find they find them more than than others. So um, that was my position. Now Alex took a different. But Alex's position was that you can't let nonsense infiltrate these movements. And you know, I think there's there's something to be said for that. But in in the sense that you know, I think some of us have suspicions that maybe a good way to control. Uh, movements that post state narratives would be to infiltrate them not with people who say no no that's not true but say yeah that's true and also blah 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 you know covid is um coming from the aliens or it's snake venom or something <laughs> it, it, to interject like ridiculous narratives is a far more powerful way to derail something but my point is well you have to be very very careful about drawing the sword and cutting the heads off the ridiculous narratives because you can end up committing a massacre and you can end up cutting the heads of very valuable narratives too Right. Yeah. Yeah. When you become married to like, this is one thing mm. and that's it. Um, that's, that's very true. You lose a kind of um, beauty to life as well. Right. Cause there's, you know, we all like to visit different countries and some people like to visit different countries and holidays and experience different cultures and architecture and food and all sorts. But I think you can do that in your own mind through different perspectives. Cause there are all the people who think differently in life. And part of this for me came about, um, I had some fundamentalist Christian, evangelical, let's say evangelical, very strong Christian friends, okay, who um, really truly believed in a 6,000-year-old earth and all the rest. And it's one thing for me to stand at a distance from that, not too much, because I was brought up you know, kind of in that way. Um, but, you know, I think, okay, I like my friend, and he seems like a smart guy, and he tells me a lot of interesting things. We talk about, like, you know, the nutrition for our dogs and all sorts, and, and you know, very interesting conversations, and he's an intelligent guy. So how did he come to to believe this when I come to believe this? And if I could step back and step back and step back, I can find a core point where we're kind of at the same point and he went one way and I went another and then it spirals out from there. But if I can be that flexible in my mind, I can come and see the world in a whole different way. And there's something kind of beautiful and kind of humane about that. We can understand like people don't, people don't think radically different things from us because they're stupid, evil or working for the CIA necessarily, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and that's something that's been over the last few years, especially where 
the the political differences and stuff between me and my friends have become more of a big deal than they used to be. Mm. Um, it it can be hard to get over that. Just realizing that they're just they're they're still good people. They're still they they want what's best for everyone, you know, and they just have a very different way of uh, of seeing it. Um, which, I mean, of course, from my perspective, I'm like, well, it's not exactly based on truth, but I'm I've been caught in that thing where I do get um, tied to one particular narrative or. Um, yeah, and I, I've been called out on it and, and realized that I'm wrong. You know, I've certainly mm. been wrong a lot. So it's not like it's not like I have a perfect understanding of everything. <laughs> so in that way, who am I to judge, right? I, I think the past three years have frayed all our nerves, and I think we probably all had some kind of extreme thoughts enter our head about, I, I have nothing in common with these people Yeah, kind of feelings arise and for me it's really fractured frayed the sense of oneness i felt with wider humanity on some levels. It's tested it tested it extremely at times and then i have to come back to also thinking well yeah but hang on a minute at the start of this thing i wrote a a little article called the conjurer about covid and about the conjurer duping someone it's a it's about a painting by Hieronymus bosch anyway um and it's about people being drawn into a certain narrative and duped, right? And then I realized, like two years later, well, hang on, I was the dupe, okay? Because a lot of things I thought about COVID at the start, now I think are totally wrong. So I got duped too. And I was doing things that were kind of stupid. And I look back now, well, at the time, they made sense. You know, I've got a somewhat elderly mother. She wouldn't like me to say that, but she is in that. So what, what would the risk category be? So I was socially distancing and I didn't go down the pub when they reopened. Because I thought, well, what if I bring this virus home, you know? And, and later on, I came to think, oh, okay, yeah, I see how the death spikes were created without a virus. Okay, so this isn't a, a real thing. But I think it's, it's helpful to me to think of all the ways that I got it wrong too. And then I can understand my neighbor got it wrong um, in, in a similar fashion, right? And that's. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Especially when everyone's being inundated with information that you and I have sort of figured out mm. that it's, it's not right. Um, it's dishonest, but, um, when that's all you hear, when that's all you see, that's your entire, um, echo chamber as it were, which is all of, all of cable television. Right. Yeah. And if you're on Facebook or Twitter, it's a lot of that too, that, you know, the, those, those websites build in echo chambers as well. So that's largely what you're seeing. I mean, even me, um, I guess I was still on Facebook when it started and even though I had, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't participant enough maybe to build an echo chamber, but I, I just saw my friends going down a direction that I just, uh, I could not connect with and, and I knew was wrong, but at the same time, I hate online debating through text. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, and obviously with, with who was left on Facebook, it was going to be a losing battle anyway. You know, it, it was going to be a lot of emotional brain energy um, that uh, it seemed like is not worth putting in, unfortunately. It's a difficult judgment, isn't it? Because I've always had a human center of value, right? Where I think that, ideas or positions or whatever what do we think we're doing when we're arguing with our friends we're not saving western civilization okay it's just they're not going to change their minds so i've 
I just cannot, I just take this attitude. Look, we're all going to be dead soon anyway, <laughs> whatever happens. Okay. And I'm not going to spend my life falling out with friends or anyone or being, you know, snarling at my neighbors or whatever, just so I can feel righteous in my own mind about COVID, the war on terror, Ukraine, you know, whether red is a better color than blue or, or anything. Um, you know, it's just, it doesn't strike me as being worth it. You know, I, I think if you, and I must admit that, that sense of a human center of value and thinking that individual people are what really matter, that has been frayed at times. And I think I see things that continue to fray it, particularly when people act in an extremely obnoxious manner, in a kind of unrepentant, obnoxious manner. Um, but it's something that I do cling to dearly. And it's allowed me to maintain, you know, I have the same friends when I was like 11, 12 years old to this day. And I'm, I'm middle-aged now, right? And that's, you know, because I'm not going to, you know, that, that's my primary kind of value, not being right about the vaccine or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. My best friends are still the ones who I grew up with mm. and we don't, we don't agree on everything, but um, fortunately we've been able to move past a lot of that. And um, it doesn't mean we agree on everything. We don't, you know, a lot of them got the shot and everything, mm. but I, but we, and, and it seemed for a while that maybe it was sort of a, a separation. It seemed, you know, I felt rejected because people didn't want to see me. Mm. Um, and I wasn't sure how I felt about them for a long time. I mean, maybe it's still, you know, they're forgiven, not forgotten, I guess that kind of thing. Um, it, it, it changed dynamics a little bit maybe, but at the same time, these are people that I love and I'm not going to burn bridges Yeah. just because I've got this ideology, just because I think I know, what's right or because I certainly not because they made a wrong choice and I made a right choice, you know? Um, mm. and that's, that's something that, uh, that I wouldn't have held against them anyway. But, um, but yeah, coming past all the, uh, the collectivists sort of jumping on board with, um, with some of the mandates and stuff like that, that, that was tough for me was getting past some of that. You know, um, you mentioned how uh, the numbers were sort of rigged where the uh, it wasn't because of the virus that the death yeah. spiked. You recently did an interview with um, a nurse slash nursing home director. Mm. Um, that was a pretty insightful um, testament to yeah. how that how that happened you want to talk on that yeah absolutely so i'll just say this book measuring the mandates it's uh, it's on amazon but it's also freely downloadable from the website at my website and i have had some very good feedback on it particularly the first chapter which is called pandemic or democide uh, iatrogenic death so did we see a pandemic or did states just start killing people en masse and this is where i feel i was duped i duped myself early on right in the initially there's this announcement of a virus and i think oh here we go again sars swine flu bird flu nothing ever happens and then the death rates just rocketed in the uk and united states various european countries and i was whoa okay i got this dead wrong this is like really dangerous and i don't i don't think lockdowns are a good idea just from pure economic libertarian point of view i think it's going to cost us more in the long run i don't think mandates are good i think there's just solid a priori economic um economic arguments against them uh, but 
they're not helpful masking whatever but like this is dead real i mean this is it's really kicked off this time of this virus as never before and that persisted in my mind for a couple of years until i heard it questioned particularly from the no virus crowd who pointed out the geographic movement how like spain was off the chart and portugal hardly anything italy off the chart slovenia right next door hardly anything that's not how viruses move or is it i don't know i don't know how viruses move but what really got me was the um the temporal movement that this virus all throughout the month of February did nothing, 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 didn't kill a single soul in anywhere in the world outside of China. We don't know about China. There's no reliable data from there, but not across Europe, Italy, anywhere. And then right. as soon as, as soon as the World Health Organization declare a pandemic and Tedros comes on and tells countries to ready their hospitals, boom, we are off to the races and COVID just starts a killing spree. So if you just have that data, you could look at it and go, well, gee, I, I guess that's how viruses move. I guess they spread through the population and then boom, they start killing. I, I don't know, right? But is there anything else that could account for that? Because it does seem strange that in areas as diverse as New York and Spain, the, the killing instantly starts, but in Portugal and Vermont, it doesn't, right? So the neighboring places, it doesn't, but places 8,000 miles apart, it, it does. What So... What I looked at this, what does what does ready your hospitals mean? Okay, and, and the major document for me, which has been massively ignored in the COVID community, was a report Amnesty International did into uh, the UK, um, and they published it in October 2020. It was called "As If Expendable," and it's about the UK's treatment of the elderly. So the first thing the the British government, the NHS, did was evict 25,000 people from hospitals because it makes sense, right? It's okay, this deadly virus is on the way from China. Uh, the hospital is going to be overrun. We need to get all these old people out of here and back into their care facilities. So they're gone. Right. And system. then they'll be less exposed to the virus, etc. Yeah, except they send them in about testing them for whatever they had, whether it was COVID, something else, whatever. If they're ill in hospital, they carry one oh, right. straight back yep. into the, the care homes. Okay, So they're, now not, they're not in hospital for a jolly to begin with. They're getting some kind of essential medical treatment. They're not getting that. No one from care homes is then allowed to go to hospitals uh, because we need to keep them empty for the virus. Um, even though the hospitals didn't fill up. Doctors won't go to care homes because doctors don't want to contract a virus. Care workers, if they've been at a barbecue with someone's mother's brother who had the virus or 1982 or whatever, so any obscure connection to the virus, suddenly they can't go to work. So the numbers of people working in care homes collapse. Okay, And this is, this is what happened in Britain. And doctors are doing remote calls, and there's evidence of them just putting people on end-of-life platforms um, over the phone. The British NHS has a dark history with going crazy for the no food, no water, stick the dangerous drugs in and get the people out of there, and being very aggressive and non-consensual with end of life. And another term for non-consensual end of life is murder. So it's pretty serious business. Um, right. So you see this going on, right? But Amnesty wrote this incredible report, but they didn't pick up on it. They're referring to it as, oh, people were treated very badly in the pandemic. Okay, because they, they accept there's a pandemic going on. And then when you look at the, um, you can get at the drugs charts for how, like the rate at which drugs are being diagnosed in the UK, right, or distributed. And you see the drug midazolam, which is used as a sedative in end of life, absolutely skyrockets in March, April of that year um, at that time, right? So you start putting these things together and you think, well, well hang on, there, there may or may not have been a virus. What I can clearly see is the British government killing vast numbers of old people. And the guest we had on, uh, Sandra Lewis, she's a, a, a retired nurse now, an ex-nurse, and was a director of a care home on the Isle of Man. And something unique happened here. It didn't happen elsewhere in Britain, as far as I'm aware, where the, the government took direct control of a nursing home because of the staffing crisis there. 
um, in a way that Xandra contains is entirely unjustified, right? So no one had died of COVID up until the point the government took control. And then in the two weeks after, around 20 people died. And I'm just, yeah. Um, so there was a, this was a big thing in the press here. Um, Xandra was essentially labelled a murderer. She was brought up on manslaughter charges. People were spitting at her in the streets. Um, it was like really a serious um, business. And she was under a gagging order. Which wow, talk about they were this actually years. spitting on her in the streets. Yeah, that happened. That's yeah, that that's happened. really something. Um, I mean, this is very dark, but it led her to make two serious attempts on her own life because you go from someone who's dedicated to caring for the elderly for years and priding yourself on that to suddenly you're in the Daily Mail and um, being described as reckless and irresponsible and leading to the yeah. death of these people, right? But none of them died on her watch. And what her staff, who were still in the building, were reported back to her was that nurses had come in uh, not nurses involved in elderly care, like nurses involved in, well, not in care of the elderly, right? So not necessarily the experience in this area to know what they were doing. And all the residents on COVID, the assumption is they're going to die, right? If they're going to die, there's no point in treating them. So you might as well move the process along. So nil by mouth, no food, no water, end of life drugs. And that's yeah. why they all died. Now, maybe they had COVID. You know, they could have had any virus under the sun or not. If you do that, irrespective of any virus, they're going to die, right? So this is what um, Sandra has given insight into. And I think it's a common pattern across the UK, right? So 20 people at that home. Um, but if you times that by 500 homes in the UK, you've got your 10,000 extra deaths a month, a week, sorry. Yeah. for, for the, and that, I think that's, you know, a really big part of what happened. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's worth mentioning that um, she was following protocols too. You know, they were doing all their masking. Um, They were trying to isolate people as much as they could. Um, She stopped it short of locking people in their rooms because that would be um, imprisonment, you know, like unjustified. That would, that, that would be one of those crime against humanity type things. Um, So, but she was, she was kind of towing the line as far as the, as far as the hygiene and recommendations and masking and all that. And yet that happened to her. Mm. It just mm. got taken over, huh? Yeah. It's, it's wild. So that, and, that interview is up on my channel. I would implore people to watch. I, I only say probably about five sentences in the whole thing. And the rest of the hour is Zandra talking. And I think it's one of the most important uh, COVID testimonies out there because i think it's really deeply insightful into what went on generally yeah. across not just the other man but britain europe you find all these horror stories coming from spain and france and italy of the military going into care homes in spain and finding residents dead in their beds because a lot of spanish care workers were eastern european so you lock down they go home and people dehydrate oh. to death in their beds so hmm. just it becomes yeah. unmanageable well um i assume it's probably the same in the UK, it was here. Um, hydration was not part of the approved the approved um, care for COVID, so people would go into the hospital with a positive test, and they were sick sick enough that they needed to go into the hospital, right? Mm-hmm. Having trouble breathing or whatever it was, and they wouldn't give them a saline IV. They right. wouldn't give them water to drink. So they would go in there and then they'd, I mean, either get put on a respirator or 
whatever it was else that they were doing, it certainly wasn't trying to make them better. Everything they did actually just made them worse. Yeah. And every, so many people were too scared to, to break the approved treatment and give them water. (laughs) There was a, you know, you say that's um, one of the most important testimonies and I'm not disagreeing, but there are so many other testimonies just like hers Mm. too. You know, um, there was an EMT who, uh, I don't remember what state he was in or whatever, but he got COVID and went to the hospital and begged for water and they just wouldn't give it to him because they were so scared of breaking the protocol. And that's why I felt like a dupe, you know, when I realized, because for me, it's a core theme of my work and podcast is the idea that systems, human systems are complex, right? And this is why Austrian economics works in a priori and skews empiricism. Um, so if you, if you start moving a system around, you start moving things in a system, the thing doesn't stay still. It all changes and adapts. So I feel like I should have seen this, but I got taken into the virus narrative and it must have been a kind of like a fear reactivity in me that when you become afraid, you kind of lock on to one thing and it's very hard to shake that then. So I saw this big death spike and that kind of scared me. And I, well, it must have done enough, at least shocked me to think, oh my God, there is a virus, right? And it's not that that's right or wrong or that I would have known it's right or wrong, but I didn't have the breadth of imagination to think, now, hang on a second. It's not standing still. What kind of changes could have gone on in medical systems? And I was quite, I was quite surprised just how I latched on to that narrative along. I mean, that's kind of justifiable, but I was quite surprised at myself really for being like drawn in, in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I never, I never questioned the existence of viruses before this, that's for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah, I think, um, you know, there's, there's certainly something to be said for your environment, your immune system, whatever natural health you have that clearly can resist, um, whatever, whatever it is that's assaulting your immune system, right? Whatever it is that's assaulting your health, um, whether it's a virus or, electromagnetic frequencies or chemicals in your food and water in your air. Um, there's all kinds of assaults on our health. And so that's one of the things that makes it really hard to, um, narrow down to a virus, but I've certainly had the experience where I go around sick people and I get sick. (laughs) So it seems like there's something there. Um, even though going a long way back, it does seem like some of the science, is flawed mm. um that doesn't mean there's nothing there sure right? I, I am not going to get drawn into i'm not saying you're trying to draw me into, but i refuse to get drawn into this like virus no virus camp and stop firing arrows because i think it's very destructive it seems to be like it's impossible for people to talk across that ideological boundary and i i don't get it i don't like it right so i also think i am not going to be the person that resolves whether viruses exist or not or if they do exist in what way they exist and where are the limits and what's wrong with virology, that's for someone else to do. But what I can do is look at some of the very common sense thing, things that emerge on a kind of more macro level and say, well, yeah, it's pretty clear virology is not anything like as hard and solid a science as we thought it was in March of 2020. Okay. Cause initially I just like, Oh, listen to a virologist on Joe Rogan. That must be the right. What he says must be right. Cause he's a virologist. Okay, great. And, 
and I kept listening to these guys and hearing them say contradictory things. And at some point, it, the penny dropped. And that wait a minute, what's going on here? They, how can they? How can there be this diversity of opinion in virology? And then looking more and more at it, and you know whether it's the history of vaccination or all the stuff with polio's correlations with DDT poisoning and lead arsenate before that, you know there really are clearly holes in virology you could drive a double decker bus through. But I don't want to get caught into this kind of absolute. Or does that mean no virus ever exists? Or yeah, it's just that's a bit much for me, you know. Right. Yeah. Let's say viruses exist, but there are obviously other aggravating factors. Oh, of course. Right? Yeah. So that's basically all. That's 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 kind of my conclusion. Is um, regardless of that whole argument, there are multiple factors that um, that are relevant here. Mm. Um, and I think the, the virologists massively overstate their importance, right? So there, there is definitely the the image conveyed that it was the vaccines that saved us from measles, mumps, rubella, and all the rest. And you can show the charts of measles rate continuing very much unabated until the vaccine comes along and then it drops. But if you look at the mortality rate from any of these diseases, it's absolutely collapsed prior to the introduction of vaccines. I mean, it's in the same way that the mortality from uh, from scurvy collapsed during the same period, like scurvy was actually killing more people than measles in the nineteenth century. So, right, and is what is it you need for scurvy? I think it's vitamin C. Vitamin, yes, yeah, it's, it's simply a vitamin C deficiency. Okay, was <laughs> measles might not be reducible to a vitamin A deficiency, but it is like highly determined by if you have a vitamin A deficiency, you're going to do very badly when you have measles. Say, so you see both of them mm. collapsing in terms of the death rate uh, in accordance with just the general improvement in nutrition, anxiety, and sanitation prior to that, and, and living conditions. And vaccine just come, comes along at the end then. That's not the impression we're given in school or anywhere else. Not at all. Right, right. We're just told this virus swept through the population, and mm. they couldn't handle it because they hadn't been exposed prior to that Therefore, nobody ever, those, those vaccine death rate them. graphs are a closely guarded sequel it's the simplest thing in the world to look up but nobody ever looks that ever presents them from the virology side because yeah like, yeah so that's <laughs> due to whether it was people developing immunity to these viruses or whether it was to environmental changes like um hygiene yeah they we were getting over it anyway and yeah. then the someone recognized a trend i guess and capitalized on it yeah is kind of what it seems. Mm. Um, yeah, you've you've looked into it probably more thoroughly than I have, but that's my understanding. So to to round off the subject of mandates, can we talk about Mao's um, Sparrow campaign? Yeah, the four pests campaign. So Mao Zedong and the communists come in in China, and they initiate this great leap forward probably the worst damned program ever given its consequences where and they were going to all do all these things to force china into becoming an industrialized nation so everyone has to produce steel all the farmers stop growing food to produce steel and it all ends in a big uh, famine of course very famously but one of the factors in the um the great leap forward is called the four pests campaign and now wanted to initiate a program to get rid of four pests. Now, I think one of them was rats, one was cockroaches, I forget the other one, and then uh, sparrows. Sparrows a big problem, because sparrows eat grain, and they 
did some calculation where if you if you work out like the, the amount of grain each sparrow is eating and times it by the number of sparrows in China, it comes to be an ast- absolutely astronomical amount. And what I tried to do, right, is not just say, oh, look, those ch- crazy Chinese communists. I tried to steel man it, right, and say like, well, China has a long history of famines causing mass death. And I think it was 1915 was the biggest famine possibly in history to that point. It just happened in China in living memory. Okay. So if you come in as the bright eyed communists who want to change the world in the 1940s and fifties, it doesn't seem like a bad idea to engage in pest control. We engage in pest control. So, and, and this could potentially save millions of lives of your countrymen. And it's a collective action. Everyone has to get together and do this together. There's no point in individual farmers here, there, and 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 over there killing the sparrows, right? It has to be one big action. So they did it. They stomped on the eggs. They shot the sparrows out of the, the sky. Uh, they banged pots and pans. The Polish embassy in China actually refused to let them uh, do it. So they stood outside the walls banging pots and pans so the sparrows wouldn't rest anywhere and they'd drop down dead from exhaustion. And they very nearly succeeded in wiping out all the sparrows in China. It sounds crazy. Well, it is crazy, but they, they very nearly did it. You have these posters of children happily going off with their pots and pans and their catapults, these communist, classical communist posters. So what happened, right? Did, did, did this save China from famine? No, because sparrows, they don't just eat grain, they eat locusts. And the following year, there was a massive plague of locusts, which ate 10 times as much grain. I'm pulling that number out of the air, but more grain than the sparrows did. And it just massively accentuated the the great famine of the 1950s and led it to be by far the biggest famine in, in human history. So, I mean, you know, the irony, right? But this is like a testimony to human folly. This is a testimony to thinking that you can outthink nature, that you, you can take a plan that you concoct in your own mind and impose it on millions of people and have this joined up action that everyone is kind of coerced and forced into doing, and that that's going to lead to a good outcome. Well, if you get anything wrong there, you've just got it wrong on a national level. It can't be like, okay, it's gone wrong in this little area where some of the farmers tried it, but that's okay because they can just buy food from the next farm over. No, you've you've caused a famine of millions of people now. And they didn't really learn, the, the communists. Uh, they didn't let it go. They just changed sparrows to bedbugs and carried on trying to exterminate the pests. So that was the, the four sparrows campaign. The West might have had something similar with um, DDT to get rid of mosquitoes and then the ensuing paralysis, which is like what some people think polio really was. It was really DDT and lead arsenate poisoning. I think it's a very interesting case. Um, but that was that was the point I was making with uh, with COVID, really, and the mandates is when, when people think they're going to save the world. And I don't doubt, look, there are some real conspirators and people who probably worship the devil somewhere in Davos, right, and want to take over the world. But Irrespective of that, COVID was clearly driven, the COVID narrative, the, the agenda was clearly driven by a lot of ideological people who think think of themselves as whiter than white. They think of themselves as being really the good people and the wise people who need to whip the plebs into line. And it's this kind of hubris. This is, this is Great Leap Forward, Four Pests campaign hubris. And where does it lead? It led to the same place of mass starvation across the world is we'll just stay home and stay safe when you earn a dollar a day that's difficult you know so um, and, and across all things like yeah put a mask on uh, to, to keep yourself safe from a virus because you know that's not going to be a breeding ground for bacteria is it no i mean just hubris um that that's what really came through to me about it the hubris yeah. of yeah imposed and action honestly regardless of whether you're uh 
intentions are good or bad. Um, hubris really like just that thinking that you know what's right for other people and can dictate it. That is that's really the problem. And I I just think that that story about China and the campaign to kill all the sparrows is probably one of the most beautiful and perfect um, scenarios that I've ever heard about how you can have um, a well-intentioned policy that results in tens of millions of deaths. Yeah. I mean, Mao was a bad guy, right? He wasn't, he wasn't a good guy, but I think in that occasion he was genuinely trying to like improve Right, we're giving the benefit of the doubt here. <laughs> oh no, because all the things he did, like the Cultural Revolution, that was clearly just him trying to regain power and destroy China and destroy Chinese civilization to get himself back on top of the Communist Party. But I don't see that this was some like Stalin. You could say with the uh, Ukrainian famine and the collectivization of the farms, people make the case that that was um, a deliberate attempt to subdue Ukraine by starving the people there. And all the other historians say, no, that's not, not the case. It was just generally like, that's what, where communist central economic planning leads. It, what, and I think that's a, a genuine bait, right? About whether Stalin was, e Stalin was evil or incompetent in that incident, instant. But um, that, that was a genuine effort to improve China. And I think to really get it, you have to not sit in 2022 and go, that's crazy. You have to position yourself in the communist party or in China in 1955 remembering the famine of, of 1915 and thinking, Oh, this could be a really good idea. And you've got to get that. How, how compelling, how seductive this hubris is. Yeah. And look, cause I came to the conclusion, I'm a little bit tongue in cheek about this, but I, I said like, look, good people scare me far more than evil people. Cause there's only a few evil people and I'm not being too literal about this. Evil people are pretty scary too. And they pretend to be good people. The amount of chaos in the world is caused by good people with, with, with that hubris on their shoulders. It's like, yeah, that's that's the real concern. Angels, yeah, not demons, yeah. are the ones you got to look out for. <laughs> well, that's that's the old uh, the road to hell is paved with yeah. good intentions, right? Yeah. Um, mm. That's that's kind of how it goes. And I mean that that brings me to something like I've you know as we've mentioned before, um, I've been caught being wrong through this um i've had to really like go inward to myself and figure out okay like how what do i really believe and what can i actually do to make things better and the only thing i've really come to is make myself better you know make my life better for me and my family if i can um lead by example you know i can't tell other people what to do there are obviously some people who kind of should be told what to do but like and and i'm not saying like don't hold people accountable but the real thing is not to judge other people but more to judge myself like everything that's going on um in some way is a reflection of something that's wrong within me right and this is sort of like I, I guess the uh, bringing it back to religion, like using Christ as an example or um, just uh, some kind of like, you know, you need to be introspective or I need to be introspective and realize that all of these things that are happening in the world are also happening within me. And mostly what I can do is try my best to be a good person and overcome my own flaws rather than 
um, getting obsessed with the flaws of other people and what they do. You don't mind me asking, do you have a kind of spiritual or religious underpinning to your thought that's inspiring that idea of I was I was raised Christian, um, very like Christian conservative, and I've sort of come back around to that, I guess. Um, I've never really stopped believing in some kind of God or creator. Um, I don't like I'm not what you would call a creationist. I do believe in intelligent design for sure. Mm. But how many years it goes back is <laughs> who knows? You know, I, mm. I think it's there's an infiniteness to God. I don't think we can really understand. Um, I don't think we can really understand all of existence and the universe and whatever other dimensionalities or um, I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm pretty open to ideas of the greater existence. Mm. Um, I, yeah. So like, and that, that, so that like what happens to us after we die and everything I want to believe in heaven, but I'm sort of like, it's, I'll find out if I get there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, yeah. And, and I, I sort of think the same way about things like aliens or supernatural <laughs> things, all that kind of stuff too. I'm like, I find it all fascinating, you know? Um, and I don't want to be someone who just like is open to everything close to nothing because I do believe in, in um moral truth mm-hmm. um I, I think truth and good are extremely important and i don't think salvation comes from saying from from doing a sacrament where you say um christ is my savior or whatever it is i think it comes from genuinely living a good life and trying to um be good to the people around you Mm. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm at. Um, it's sort of a, I don't know how you'd describe it. I'm not big on labels, I guess, but, um, yeah, I've sort of, I've, I've in many ways given up political labels. Um, I was very into libertarianism and anarchism for a long time because I think personal sovereignty is on the civil level, on the level of civil law. I think personal sovereignty is very important. I also think that um, when people violate other people's rights, then obviously someone has to um, deal with that. So there's there's a lot of give and take when it comes to things like government. How local is it? How anarchistic is it? Like, yeah, um, that is that is sort of an expression of whatever state society as a whole is in, or or at least your whatever, whatever part of society is relevant to you, you know, which right now seems like it's a lot, (laughs) seems like it's the whole world. But at the same time, I unplug from the computer and it's the people down the street, you know? Um, so yeah, um, I'm going on a tangent, I'm rambling, but, um, I do think personal responsibility and, and just, uh, concentrating on myself and trying to make, a good world for myself, a prosperous world for myself and my family and my loved ones, like whatever I can do for them. That's like, that's more my, that's where I concentrate, I guess. How about you? Um, you've like, what, what have you done to, uh, have, have you done anything to like 
build your personal freedom or um, what's your what's your background as far or your your current philosophy, etc. Well, I was I wouldn't necessarily say a conservative Christian. I was raised in a very Christian culture at the time. I think culture was more Christian back in the eighties and sort of family life as well and sent off to Sunday school. And I just metaphysically moved to a kind of rejection of that when science seems very bright, shiny and new, and then more back to a theistic position. And I explored sort of inwardly a lot of like consciousness, expansive things for a more kind of Eastern approach, uh, but probably with a kind of that sort of Christian framework there in some ways existing uh, quietly in the background. And that's, that's more where I'm like, that's really what I sunk my twenties into that kind of inner looking of, of consciousness and an examination introspective examination of that um and and that's yeah, really the foundation that all the stuff i do has has rested upon so i say there's a cultivation of a certain inner freedom there a freedom from opinions if you can find something in yourself that's deeper than your opinions and you don't need to cling to them or any kind of worldly thing there's a sense of like happiness and contentment with being and that allows for a looseness and a flexibility in all sorts of ways, but particularly I think it's essential to any kind of intellectual work I do because I'm not drawn into arguing and defending um, certain positions and being stuck rigidly automatically to them. So I found a great freedom in that sense with it. Interesting. Yeah. That. So ribbit. <laughs> your, your, uh, your Zen poems I'm yeah. reminded of. You've, you've found a Zen where you can um, exist without um, worrying about other people as much as just like where you are yourself or, or yeah not. yeah no, I, I was very immersed in those kind of philosophies like zen and advaita vedanta from, uh, from india yeah, yeah that's interesting so yeah i back to me <laughs> not to be hubristic um i i strongly believe in god a creator and i believe in morality um and i think yeah i i'm I'm trying to get there to that Zen thing, I think, because I want to, like, I think we, I think we are born into a prosperous world. Um, I'm big on sustainability. I've been putting a lot of time into learning about um, permaculture and just sustainability. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is one way to be moral. I think um, here's what I was going to try to get to. We can't have real freedom. Like, I, I spent so many years concentrating on this freedom thing, right? And sort of what I've come around to is I don't think we can have real freedom as a society without having morality, um, without concentrating on things like good and truth. And so... If I can concentrate on those things myself, then that's about as much as I can do. And that's kind of why I have a podcast now is because I want to try to, um, I want to try to promote that, you know? It's interesting what you say about being more morally absolutist or less exploratory morally. And I, I very much resonate that with that, right? Because I've always felt like very intellectually expansive. Okay. So I, I'm just as an example, I, I don't find the 
kind of neo-Darwinian evolution compelling, right? I think there is some kind of intelligent design thing going on there. Uh, but just to take those different perspectives on it, okay, that uh, the evolution creation debate, okay, to be pluralistic about that. So the, the, both of these are obviously contributing to an understanding of this great mystery of life or the materialism yeah. idealism debate. Is the world matter or is it ultimately a dream? And is that even a resolvable question? Well, well both of these things seem to enlighten us uh, to some degree in, in very different directions. And I, I think there is this kind of dualism running through human knowledge. And I think that I've been drawn to that because I feel I live in a world, we live in a world which is very intellectually monistic. Like you just back your theory, you choose one and you fight for it. Okay. And you, you degrade and denigrate all others. Um, whereas morally, I think it's really the opposite. I've always been kind of disgusted and appalled by the moral relativism our society acts out, not necessarily in speech, like murder is wrong, but then there's a war in Iraq, right? And that's fine. And Tony Blair gets a knighthood. Like Tony Blair <laughs> getting knighthood and George Bush still being an acceptable member of society is a disgusting moral relativism to me. So I've always been like in complete contrast to my, um, my more intellectual pursuits, very morally absolutist you know because and i think it is like a reaction to a society that that really isn't in its actions yeah yeah um yeah i spent a lot of time in my life being sort of morally relative and i think i've been pushed more to an absolutist um point of view and that's not to say that there aren't gray areas. I think there's a lot of situations that you come across in real life where it's hard to say, is this right or wrong? Is mm. this, Oh, absolutely. A, um, but there are certain things also that we can say are definitely evil or are definitely good. So I mean, even that it occurs to you to ask the question, is this right or wrong? Like that wouldn't necessarily occur to everyone at all times in history that that would even be a relevant question. It's just, can I take this? Right, yeah. And I also think that, like, sort of everyone worships some god. Um, a lot of people worship the god of money. Um, Moan I, if you want to get uh, <laughs> esoteric about it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think a lot of people worship false gods. I think I think that has a lot to do with why we get so enthusiastic about political candidates is because they represent a Christ figure to us. Yeah. And we are, we are projecting our desire for a Christ figure onto a flawed human who is compromised just by the fact that they're human pretty much. Um, and therefore we're investing a lot of faith and a lot of false hope into um, something that's not real. Yeah, and we only ever seem to project divinity onto the worst kind of humans, be it sort of Indian gurus or American politicians or whatever. It's, for some reason, it's always the, the most disreputable that get that honor. Oftentimes it turns out that way, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I, there are still people who I hold in very high respect. Um, you know, Dr. Ron Paul would be one of those people. Absolutely. Um, I've I've compared him to Christ before, but right. not that I think he's actually Christ, but you know, he's sort of like he's someone who's very inspiring to me mm. in the same way that Christ is. So like 
as blasphemous it may, as it may be, like I'm kind of like, yeah, that's a that's a good parallel. Mm. <laughs> I don't know of any like real like thing. I don't know of any instances where he's gone astray exactly. Therefore, um, I mean, I I can't say I necessarily agree with every word he says, but you know, he's, oh, sure. that, he's that would be set a, an amazing example. For I think I've compared him to the philosopher in Plato's cave before writing it because okay. I found an intensely inspiring moment in 2012 when all the Republican nominees are lined up and the only the, the range of the debate is like not should we bomb Iran or not but how big a bomb should we use and every candidate well, I'd use a bomb this big well I'd use a bomb this big and it's it's just <laughs> appealing and to this guttural base instinct in the voters and they're all getting rambunctious applause for it and then Ron Paul saps up just lays it on the line talks about no we shouldn't bomb Iran because in 1953 the CIA overthrew the government and that led to the Islamic revolution and that's why I've been having problems ever since we need to normalize relations and get on with it thousands of booze and he just stands up I'm just telling you the way things are and just carries on and I'm looking at my god the the philosopher has come back into the cave from the world of light to the world of truth outside. And he's telling all the lost souls in there that this is the world of shadows. And these people, these are puppet masters. These these people I'm sharing this stage with, they're projecting the shadows and you need to get out of here. And it went out on the TV cameras to millions of people in the cave. And some of them, it put a bit of light in for. And I thought that was incredible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep. So, yeah, I think um, Christ works through people. And... Mm. You know, people are flawed, but we have our moments where we can be, um, we can be his expression or his, uh, embodiment, I guess, you know, um, if that's the right word. Um, so yeah, I think that's why, you know, we say Christ is alive. Um, that's, that's a common thing in Christianity and why, what makes him alive? It's people following his example it's people telling the truth or or standing up for what's right yeah yeah so i think you have a really good poem that um it's uh maybe not exactly on the subject we're talking about but the mything man is yeah excellent it's a very cool poem because when i first started reading it, I was like, oh, he's kind of, like, sarcastic, and he's, like, getting digs in on (laughs) faiths. And then it got to basically the last paragraph, Mm. and I love how it ends. So, um, I know it might take you a minute to bring it up, but... I've I've got it here. Yeah, do you want to go ahead and read that? You want the whole thing? Because it's it's obscure, right? Um, A lot of the references people might not get, but it... So, John, I know, I, I can't even say I got all of them, but let's let people Google if they okay. want. Okay. okay. <laughs> so again, I, I read this one in the bathroom mirror, and that's it. So thank you, audience, for being there. So this is The Mything Man. And I'll, I'll explain it at the end, right? Let's read it and explain it at the end. That's yeah, good. that sounds good. The Mything Man. Behold, God's son is come unto this land. Not Jesus, but Dionysus by Euripides' hand. A virgin bride made pregnant by God none other, Samuel, Zeus's babe's own mother. Fisherman's friend catching 153, Pythagoras reveals his versa Pisces. 
twelve abiding around the centre as spheres kissing out from the venter, teaching parables of prodigal sons, but this one a tale the Buddha spun, riding triumphant upon an ass, inspiring Lucius for his task. Thirty pieces the price was paid, but this for Socrates to be betrayed. Brought before a tyrant, refusing to yield, King Penthus anchored, his fate was sealed. Bound to the cross and left to be slain, held fast by nails of pleasure and pain. A seamless garment torn asunder, Osiris' body that set did plunder. Death, resurrection and bodily ascension, so many gods have obeyed this convention. Did Jesus walk this earth in flesh, or deeper truths does his myth express? The question upon which to chew, what difference would it make to you? That's the mything man. And that is the real question. So, I mean, it's interesting that you thought it was, because I don't know how these things come across, right? But it came across as, how did you say, like taking snipes or something? Well, yeah, like inspiring Lucius and, uh, I mean, half the references you give in there, I'll admit, I don't even quite get them. It's it's probably um, the most obscure poem, right? So... (laughs) But um, having that impression throughout most of it and then coming to that last paragraph, did Jesus walk this earth in flesh or deeper truths does this myth express? The question upon which to chew, what difference would it make to you? Um, That's sort of something that I have been thinking along the lines of just Jesus and the, the Jesus story, the historical accuracy of it and all that, does it really matter? Or does he present um, a way to live, uh, uh, an example? Yes. Like, I, I, as I went through my existential um, explorations, I guess, I got to the place of sort of, you know, existentialism or theistic existentialism. I never quite stopped believing in God. Mm-hmm. But it's it's taken me a long time to come back around to um, the Christian part of it, Christ. Right. Because that's like, that's supposed to be this physical man who we're supposed to believe these stories, like he did these miracles, walked on water, all that. And one of the, one of the conclusions I came to a while ago was that it doesn't really matter because that story has made a huge difference in so many people's lives. Therefore, he exists because the idea exists, which is more important than the historical accuracy. Mm-hmm. So that's why that spoke to me. Right, right, okay. So my poems on Christianity and spirituality in general, right? So I, I do the same thing with zen and sufism and i don't write zen poems or sufi poems i write poems on zen or poems on christianity and what i'm reflecting is i don't feel that any philosophical or spiritual system is complete in itself like you need to step outside of it and look at it sometimes and they all contain challenging points or contradictions and so with Sufism, the, I've written about Rumi um, and contrasting 
him with uh, Basil Fawlty, which is a character that um, British listeners will get, okay? Because the idea of this, like, serenity and all-round acceptance that is portrayed in Sufism, well, that's amazing. Same in Zen. But can you really live that way? Or does life require irritation sometimes? And I'm challenging it as if I'm standing in a different place in the room looking at it. And with Christianity, I've written more Christian poems because I grew up in a Christian culture. And I think it's, in some ways, um, I have a certain frustration with Christianity and the Christian church having sort of left it right and found it very sort of bare and not speaking to my philosophical or spiritual yearning as a teenager. Um, and then going off to the East and then coming back round into Christianity in my 20s through a more Gnostic, more mystical avenue and this idea of a, a mythic Christ, the, the Christ stories as being myths, which contain these deep illuminating truths, not just on how we live, absolutely that, but not just that, but also on who we are at a very core level, on who God is, and on transcendent themes that are highly compatible with the philosophies of, of the East then. So I found that immensely um, compelling. And then I've dialogued with uh, Christians of a more orthodox faith over the years, and my poems are intended to poke at the the, the unresolved contradictions people carry and the unresolved contradictions I carry right. and to challenge people like, well, what do you say about this? And those poems, um, there's another one that's sort of complimentary of Christ had not been raised. And it was, um, I wrote that after um, hearing a lot, but particularly uh, there's a very uh, brilliant Christian podcast in the UK called Unbelievable. And it's very like really highly intellectual podcast. And I was really happy to find it because I thought this is really valuable that, um, all these kind of big societal or metaphysical questions are weighed in at at a high level from a Christian perspective, because uh, that almost felt like there was something lacking. Uh, I read the the podcast host's book, Justin Breeley's uh, book, um, and what, he, he talks about all the wonderful things Christianity has brought to his life, what he's seen it bring to the world. And another point says, oh, but if Christ hadn't been raised, this wouldn't mean anything. It would just be all just nonsense, right? Oh, gosh, I don't believe that, right? I, I, and I don't believe you really believe it, you know? And the the so it's, what it's asking people to consider is why this is meaningful and what it means that that he came in the flesh or that he was a myth. Like, what is flesh that it is so important? And, right. and is this is this because this material world is it less real than a mythical world? Because I don't think it is. And that's like um, there's a, a poem there about numbers, right? About about um, as, my my point being, like, I, I think like the realm of numbers is arguably like. You could look at it in a way that it's it's more real than the material world that we live in because, like a right angle triangle, like the sum of the uh, the two sides added up to the, the the square of the hypotenuse added up to the sum of the square of the other two sides. You could say that's true before the universe existed, right? So what's more right. real, atoms yeah. or triangles? You know, but you you can't I remember, touch um, a triangle. A math teacher telling me that math was the universal language. Hmm. <laughs> so in that same sense, that if math is real, even though you've never met the number nine. Like except on Sesame Street or something, there is no like. <laughs> but what I mean is, like, if you found, if you found out the number nine on Sesame Street is just a puppet, it doesn't mean the number nine isn't real. It's like very, very real in some sense, and that's what I'm saying about Christianity. It doesn't. Oh, well, I'm saying it doesn't. I'm asking people to consider: Does it hinge upon history, or is there something that is like so real it's more real than the material world in it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what? Um, one of the things that opened me up to other other philosophies, religions than the one I was brought up in was learning about them in school um, and realizing how compatible they could be. 
and and science too. Um, I think that anywhere that science and religion disagree, then one or both of them is probably wrong. You know, I think science and religion can or are perfectly compatible because one is just the physical expression of the other. Um, and I think we can see that in creation. We can see, like, we, we, we can see the golden rectangle or the Pythagorean theorem, um, all that stuff, like, that's all these fractal patterns that we see in nature, all the beauty that is, uh, that's created. To me, that's the testament, you know? Yeah. That's like the physical, um, yeah, that's, that's the physical expression of something that's way bigger than us and that we can't understand. Yeah. That, that's the verse that 12 abiding around the center is obviously, it's a, it, so the whole poem was in the structure of like the first two lines appear to make a reference to Christianity and then it's something else. So 12 abiding around the center appears to be 12 disciples around Jesus. But then as spheres kissing out from the center, it means that if you have one central sphere, 12 spheres of the same size can touch it and not 13. Right, so there's something, what I'm saying is there's something archetypal huh. about 12 surrounding one that underpins the universe. And Christianity is making some sort of reference. That it's drawing on things that are like absolutely true and expressing them in this mythic form. Right. Yeah. This is why his website is Deep State Consciousness, because he thinks about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Man. <laughs> yeah. I uh, I recently got interested in um, some of the healing frequencies and stuff. Like you know how we use four forty hertz now for music. And I've heard this. I never really understood it. Four hundred thirty two. Apparently, four hundred thirty two is more resonant with um, the earth and with right. with us with uh, with nature. Um, and so I started, you know, tuning my guitars to four thirty two and whatnot. But um, there's some really interesting sacred geometry involved in it where you count like apparently some of the ancients would count how many knuckles they had as rather than, you know, how we talk about counting on our fingers. Um, well, you can take it up a level by counting your joints in your fingers, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and I don't remember exactly how it works, but, um, it's pretty fascinating. There's plenty of videos that you can find on YouTube and whatnot, um, about this stuff. But, uh, it is, it is very interesting how between our design, the design of the nature around us and, and between these frequencies, there is some kind of harmony, some kind of consistency that seems to um yeah it seems to be consistent like how how could how could we have uh this variation in mediums and yet this consistency in in frequencies or in numbers yeah so it is sort of something deeper is being expressed some universal yeah yeah there's some universal truth there for sure Anyway, that's uh, it's just, it's uh, it's really interesting stuff, and I'm uh, I'm into all of it. <laughs> um, hey, should we uh, should we 
start wrapping this up. I don't think I have yeah, much sure. more for you. Yeah, it's yeah. Been great. Cool. Um, I've been, I've really appreciated this. This has been. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been it's, it's great to talk about the poet and never, never really speak about it. That's been brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's awesome to do something a little different. But um, you know, since like I said, since I'm into music, um, I think helping you get your poetry out there or just uh, I. I appreciate it myself, so I'm very happy to talk about it, and I think it's really interesting stuff that's not just, like, a repetition of the same podcasts that you've done before, you know. Um, yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've very much enjoyed this, and I thought as maybe a closing poem, we could do that American preacher in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm interested, don't talk about this after i read it maybe but i'm interested why you chose this one because it's i'll explain the the resonance for me so i can actually tell you why i chose it and it's just because it evoked emotions in me when i read it yeah um you know i'd been uh your your poetry is very as i've mentioned before it's uh it's everywhere from funny and irreverent to very deep and evocative. And I found when I got to the end of this one, especially like I, it was evocative and that's why I chose it is just because it stirred something in me. Well, that's all. This is a real incident that uh, happened to me and it's a good one to conclude on. And well, from, I haven't even read this in years, so very pleased to read it. Let's the American it. preacher in Ireland meeting a preacher on the streets of Galway, a young man, Texan. In an effort to save me, he tells me his story. A rebel, a criminal, he lived life his own way. At least that's what he thought, till the day came when he'd pay. Locked in a jail cell, a vision arises. The devil's hands on his shoulders, he comes in so many guises. Shock and horror, he's not his own man. Satan made him a puppet, and he fell for the scam. He calls out to God, is not disappointed. Receiving salvation, he joins the anointed. Tears in his eyes, he tells me the part he still can't quite take in, but nevertheless healed his heart. Impossible to believe, but hearing my plea, if I'd been the only person in the world, Jesus would have died just for me. Gnostic or orthodox, whatever your side, there's something in this that can't be denied. Richard, thank you so much for coming on my Friends Hate Freedom podcast. Thank you. Don't forget to check out Richard's work at deepstateconsciousness.com.